When we think about the capabilities and limitations of AI systems, we often have some idea of the kind of intelligence that we're measuring them against. Demis Hassabis talks about the human brain as an example of how something like reinforcement learning achieves general intelligence. But humans are only one kind of cognitive system, and we navigate just one sort of space. Professor Michael Levin, a distinguished professor at Tufts University, thinks that our anthropocentric conceptions of intelligence are limiting. Intelligence also exists in transcription space, in linguistic space, in ways that you and I can't conceptualize directly because we can't experience them. This broader way of thinking about intelligence and cognitive capacity sheds new light on how we might consider what it is to be a self, about the possibilities for artificially intelligent systems, and more. Adam Goldstein, a visiting scientist at Professor Levin's lab and a very accomplished technologist, thinks that some of these ideas have incredible potential for regenerative medicine and in commercial applications. I spoke with Adam and Professor Levin about their views on intelligence, how they think about AI's goals, and what the future of medicine might look like. This is the Gradient Podcast, and I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you enjoy these episodes, you can follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast episode. You can also follow us on Substack, to get regular notifications whenever we release a new article, newsletter, or podcast episode. You can also find our online magazine at thegradient.pub, where we regularly publish essays by the sorts of people I interview on the podcast. And finally, if you enjoy the episode, it would mean a great deal to us all if you'd consider leaving us a review on whatever podcast player you're using to listen to this episode. It helps more listeners like you find what we're doing and helps us bring in more interesting guests for you to listen to. But now, without further ado, Adam Goldstein and Michael Levin. Adam and Professor Levin, I know that you two have been working together recently on some really interesting research in regenerative medicine. And I wanted to focus this conversation today, though, on I think a slew of things. Really, as you've mentioned, Professor Levin, the kind of unifying thread here is this idea of diverse, unconventional intelligence. And for, I think, my purposes and the purpose of this podcast, I do want to spend a lot of time on that topic itself, but also kind of bring that forward to how we start thinking about AI in those terms. Before we begin all of that, though, I'd love to hear a little bit about each of your backgrounds and how you began working together. Okay, so let's see. My background, um, originally, I was a, uh, a, a software guy. I was a coder for some years. I went to uh, undergrad for uh, computer science, wanted to do artificial intelligence, always interested in biology, uh, and in particular, uh, developmental biology, because, uh, well, we can talk about why, but, but ju just, just this idea that it's the, it's the one example we have where you start off as a little little blob of, of physics and chemistry, you know, this little un, unfertilized oocyte, and eventually you become a, a complex uh, metacognitive mind, at least in the case of, of humans. And so that, that transition always seemed really important to me and really, um, really um, 
foundational to understanding anything we were going to do in, in AI and so on. And so, so I, I got uh, degrees in computer science and biology in undergrad. I then went to grad school uh, for uh, genetics, um, basic developmental genetics. And then I did a postdoc in cell biology. And then I started my own lab in 2000. And since then, we've basically been doing research at the intersection of these three fields, which is uh, bi biology and biophysics in particular, computer science and behavioral science. I'm much later to the game. So like Mike, I started as a programmer. I, uh, I studied EECS at MIT as well as mechanical engineering. And then I jumped off the day after I graduated and started a, a travel software company. It's called Hipmunk. as a competitor to Kayak and sites like that. And went through this sort of Silicon Valley regular thing, raised a lot of money, more than $50 million, and ultimately sold the company to SAP, a big German software company. And uh, after I sold it, I had some time on my hands and I started to read about this new world of biology, which was very different than what I'd been taught. You know, I, I learned that genes were the cause of everything. I think, like a lot of people, that was sort of planted in my mind from an early age. But as I started to read some of the, the more contemporary research and some of Mike's work, I realized that what was happening between cells was at least as important as what was happening within cells, that there was this whole layer of the, of the system that just hadn't really been talked about much when I, when I took undergrad bio. And it was way more interesting to me because <laughs> it, it let me use some of those same you know, models and concepts from signal processing and control theory and communication and so on. So, I got hooked. I read a bunch of Mike's work. I reached out to him and I said, Mike, I think one, what you're doing is amazing and I'd like to learn from you. <laughs> Two, I think what you're doing has a lot of commercial potential. And as an entrepreneur, I'd love to help you turn these into companies that could actually benefit people. So I kind of did both. So I, I joined Mike's lab as a vis visiting scientist. And then we also kicked off this project called Astonishing Labs, along with my co-founder, Jess Ma. And the three of us have, have you know, put together now several companies based on the work coming out of Mike's lab. So I'd like to translate between the, you know, the CS and the bio and also between the bio and the company side, because it's a fun, fun way to play at the intersection. That's really interesting. And right now, it seems with a lot of the advancements in bio ML, a lot of people are pretty excited about ways that those things can be turned into companies. And I do definitely want to hear more a little bit later about how you, Adam, are thinking about some of those aspects of this. But maybe as a place to begin, we've kind of teased a lot of these really cool ideas that I think are going to come up in the conversation about how intelligence, how the way that things work at different sort of levels in, in people and metacognitive systems are a little bit different from how many people might intuit or think about them right now. So maybe just as like a brief primer, could either of you two maybe begin to explain a little bit of how you think about, well, we're interested, let's, let's maybe bring this kind of from the AI perspective. I'm a person who is interested in developing an intelligent system, and maybe my kind of mindset around that is very much what AI people are doing today, that language is super important, that I can train reinforcement learning agents, and that the brain is maybe a proof point of how reinforcement learning works. But as... Professor Levin, you've kind of noted in a lot of your works, the picture is a lot more complicated than that. There are sort of multiple different levels of competencies that come into play. So could you tell me just a little bit, very broadly, how you think about the idea of 
the way people work when it comes to intelligence, goal directedness, accomplishing tasks? Yeah, um, I, th- I think the first, the, a good place to start is with this idea that we, we as, as humans uh, have evolved with a very, um, very specific and very narrow set of skills for recognizing intelligence. So, so we are pretty good and, and not even great, but, but pretty good at recognizing intelligence of, let's say, medium sized objects moving at medium speeds through three dimensional space. So we look at, um, at uh, primates and we look at certain kinds of birds and, and maybe an octopus and things like that. And we can recognize what's obvious to us as, as intelligent behavior. But uh, we really have a lot of problems recognizing these things in unconventional embodiments. So things that are extremely large or extremely small or very slow or very fast, you know, different spatial and and temporal scales. And uh, we furthermore, all of our sense organs point outwards. And we also have a lot of trouble uh, detecting intelligent behavior in unfamiliar spaces. So, for example, I think that if we had evolved with a sensor inside our bloodstream that was able to directly feel blood chemistry, let's say along, I don't know, 20 different parameters, like a, like a, like a super tongue kind of thing, right? If, if you had that, that ability to detect your own body physiology, I think our primary perception would have no problem feeling that we live in a 20, uh, whatever, 23 dimensional space, that our liver and our kidneys are intelligent agents that are navigating that space for us, right? Navigating that, um, that physiological space, solving problems, having memories and all of that. It's just, it's very hard for us to have an intuitive understanding of that. So what I think is really critical for, for many aspects of science and human flourishing, but also for AI, I mean, I think it's the biggest thing missing from the AI discussions today is uh, this emerging field of diverse intelligence. This idea that we ought to, if, if we really, in order to, re- to, to, to reach a mature understanding of uh, cognition, intelligence, and so on, we need to be able to recognize it in very diverse substrates. So we're talking about uh, uh, beings that are uh, that are uh, synthetic, not necessarily evolved, or some combination thereof, right? We're talking about various kinds of swarms. We're talking about uh, different kinds of software agents. I mean, all of these things, right? It, it, and, and this is a this is a very old idea. You know, Turing and, and and long before that was this idea that intelligence is not bound to a specific physical substrate. It it it's 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 about other things. And I particularly like the emphasis on problem solving, and I like William James's definition of uh, intelligence as the ability to reach the same goal in different using different means and that it's a very cybernetic definition it doesn't say whether you were evolved or designed it doesn't say what you're made of what kind of brain you have it just says in some space there is a set of goals that you with some level of competency and that might be very low or very high you are able to reach those goals despite all kinds of other things right and 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 i sort of bring an extra an extra um, emphasis on this which is that i don't think these things are intrinsic or absolute I think that all of this, so so determination of agency, of, of goal directedness, is from the perspective of some observer, which may in fact be the system itself. So the system has to be able to recognize its own actions and its own agency and tell stories about itself. But but multiple perspectives on any given system are, are possible. They're not all equally good, though. That's really important. That's the difference between this system uh, and and the critique of it, which often often the way it's um, inappropriately critiqued, is people say, "Well, you're just gonna you're gonna find a spirit under every rock. Basically, every rock is is gonna have hopes and dreams." And my point is, no, they, this this only makes sense if it allows you as an observer 
to more effectively interact with that system. So to the extent that you've guessed correctly, what space is it working in? What are the goals? What are the competencies to reach those goals? That allows you to have a more fruitful uh, interaction with it in terms of uh, prediction, control. Uh, maybe you get something out of it if you're relating to a high level, uh, high agency system. Um, and, uh, and different observers could have different guesses on all of that. And then we get to find out who has the better interaction. So it's not, it's, it's not everything goes. Yeah. So that's, that's the idea. I see, I see it as intelligence, as a, uh, as an interpretation frame of one, uh, observer onto some other system. And then we find out empirically how good is that frame. And kind of bringing this into the AI discussion, I think the point that this immediately suggests then is. Of course, you mentioned already substrate independence, and there's a lot of debate, I think, that kind of goes around about whether a machine-like system could actually be intelligent. And that's something that you pretty explicitly reject. I think that you've talked about the failure of the life versus machine distinction. And in AI today, I think that there seems to be more and more acceptance that at least text-based systems, for example, could exhibit what we perceive to be kind of intelligent behavior. But there continue to be debates about things like embodiment, like grounding, that seem to come up. And I know that you've addressed these in some of your other works as well, that kind of come down to a matter of, well, what is the environment that we're dealing with here? That just because embodiment is pretty important for some things that we sort of consider intelligence or understanding, that doesn't mean that this always looks like my 3D body in physical space, correct? Yeah, I think I think embodiment is critical, but we have to be uh, 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 expansive and, and humble about what we consider to be a, 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 a an environment and what we consider to be a body. So this this three dimensional space through which we move as animals with muscles and brains is not the only game in town. That is not the only problem space in which uh, various types of agents solve problems. There are uh, transcriptional spaces, physiological spaces, anatomical morphospaces, spaces, uh, linguistic spaces. There are many other spaces in which you can be embodied, have a life, uh, have preferences, have goals, have competencies to navigate that space. This 3D space is not the only one. And so, so that's, that's really important. And, and overall, I'll just say this, this machine versus life thing is uh, it, it was never any good, this dichotomy, but it's, it's especially bad now that we understand uh, developmental biology, we uh, understand evolution, we have some synthetic bioengineering going on. I, I made a, um, a flowchart that I use to, to take people through this, and it's very simple. And it starts off asking, uh, at the beginning, it starts off asking whether, whether you are some type of a cognitive system. Most people will, will say yes. And then it says, fine, and, and, and what, about, uh, what, about, what about a paramecium? Right. What about a single cell organism? And so now you got a real problem because because if you say no, the fact is that you came from a single cell. You were a single cell once. And so if you're going to say that a single cell doesn't have any of these things, but you do, then you owe a story about how and when you got them. And developmental biology gives absolutely no uh, credence to some magical um, bright line that said, you know, at this point you were physics here and then over here you're a cognitive system that doesn't exist. So so that's a problem. If you say if on the other hand, if you say that the, that, that yes, the single cell has some basal form of intelligence. Well, it's well described by the laws of physics and chemistry. Uh, lots of um, molecular biologists uh, treat it as various kinds of machines. So, right. So, so, so now, uh, you know, now, now you don't believe in machines anymore. So, so there's a, as soon as, as soon as you, you, you try to impose this, this um, binary categorization of, of, of life versus machine, you get into these unsolvable pseudo problems because that isn't how nature doesn't obey these, these categories. So, so, so for me, it's all about a continuum and it's all about 
what kind and how much. It's not these, these questions of, is it intelligent? Is it this? Is it that? Those, I, I don't think those are the right questions. The right question is, what's the problem space? What goals, if any, is it trying to accomplish? What are the competencies? And what does that mean for us in terms of the tools we're going to use to interact with it? Are you using this? Are you using a soldering iron? Are you using uh, a reinforcement learning? Are you using um, something from cybernetics? Are you using psychotherapy or, or, or you know, so what, what, what are you using to, to interact with the system? And that's, that's really what you need to know. In one of your papers, you speak about many of the things you just said, but then also you sort of bring up this idea of, well, what are the conditions required for something to be a self, which is a really interesting kind of additional component here. And I think that on your picture, there, as you said, is a substrate independence, but then also a kind of fluidity of of what it is to be a self. And this brings together a lot of different questions, I think. So being a self, as you say, at its core is just this ability to pursue goals and the kind of demarcation line of what myself might be can look different from time to time on your picture. And so I'd love for you to describe maybe in more detail how you think about that fluidity of self, but then also what that says about kind of the stability. How does a self kind of persist over time, given all of that? Yeah, that's a, that. That last one is a profound, uh, profound concept, a profound question, and 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 I'm sure Adam will have some stuff to say about that too. But um, let's just talk. Let's just talk about the the the, the very um, the very basics of being a self. I mean, one one of the things that uh, is true about first of all, the the one thing that's true about all intelligence is that we are all collective intelligences. So we are all made of parts. The real question is about scaling. How do our parts that also have various degrees of competencies give rise to emergent individuals? So none, none of us are, are this like uh, indivisible diamond of intelligence. We're, we're all sort of parts, you know, made, made of parts. And so if that's the case, uh, what becomes really important is to figure out what's in and what's out. In other words, where do you end and the outside world begins? Because if you're made of particulate matter and there's, you know, there's going to be a border somewhere. So you need to, you need to figure out where you set the border. And the scale of where that border is, and I don't just mean it's a it's a physical border. Uh, it has to do it. It has a lot to do with um, if effective control. So so the things that you want to consider as part of yourself are perhaps this is one one thing that's important. It's not the only thing. But it's one thing that's important about being yourself is uh, is figuring out a good model of what it is that you actually have control over. And so you can imagine now, now that's completely not obvious. You would think that, well, it's, uh, you know, uh, the genetics sets your sensors and effectors, you know what you are. That's actually not true. Biology has amazing amounts of plasticity. We could talk about what happens during embryogenesis, how we can subdivide uh, embryonic blastoderms to get multiple selves out of one thing that most people look at and we call it an embryo is actually potentially any number of selves in there. Uh, and, uh, and, and, then, and then you have this, this, this control issue, you know, when, when, when babies are first born, um, they can they can execute certain actions that c- kind of sort of move their move their hands and legs with some degree of control. Also, they can make certain noises that then food you know sort of the, uh, appears in their mouth. And so so that whole system you know so so me plus mom plus plus all this other stuff like that's 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 me. I got really good control over that. But over time, that gets refined because then you find out that well, my control over the legs and arms is getting better. Control over mom is getting worse, progressively worse over time, right? So my noises become less effective and so on. So so you start to reinforce like, okay, what, what do I actually have control over? What, what is a reasonable place to set this boundary between me and the outside world? So that's one set of things that happens. Another set of things that happens is that 
because you are made of independent agents, these being cell cells that uh, have their own uh, agendas in various spaces, uh, that that um, that that scale of the self can also can also change. And uh, you think about um, right, think about a rat. The rat uh, learns to press a lever and he gets a reward. So the thing is that there is no individual cell that had both of those experiences. So the lever is interacted with by the cells at the bottom of the feet, the, the intestinal cells get some sugar, but no individual cell had both experiences in order to have that, uh, that association, that associative learning. So who owns the actual memory that the pressing of the lever causes the reward? Well, it's the rat. So what's the rat? The rat is this collective emergent being that requires a particular mechanism, this, this, this thing we call a cognitive glue, which happens to be bioelectrics, both in the brain and, and in morphous space, um, that allows uh, for the emergence of a collective self that can be the owner of memories that the parts don't have. And uh, that requires the parts to be joined in a very particular way. There are a set of policies about how these cells uh, join up to be able to do this, uh, partially through wiping individual memories and of, among the cells and some stuff like that, that that's the part that is fluid. Because during your life and during evolution, it changes. So, so if you think about the cognitive light cone, the size of the goals that these cells can uh, pursue, you know, individual cells, amoebas and such, have little tiny cognitive light cones because all their goals are at the single cell level. You know, it's metabolic states, proliferation, the, the things like that. But when they come together, evolution did this amazing thing by giving us these. Uh, uh, these these uh, scaling uh, properties where now they can work on massive goals. For example, a salamander limb, you know, the, the cells create the salamander limb. If you amputate it anywhere along the axis, they will work really hard to get back to that goal. When they reach it, they stop. Yeah? No individual cell knows how long a salamander limb is supposed to be, what the number of fingers, what is a finger. That, but, but the collective absolutely knows. And so that's scale up, right? So in evolution, you get this massive scale up. The cognitive light cone not, not only gets bigger, but it also shifts into another space. It's now in morphous space, right? Uh, whereas it used to be in, let's say, physiological space. But it can also shrink. And this is where we, we're going to get into, uh, you wanted to talk about cancer at some point. Uh, it can also shrink because individual cells that disconnect electrically from the, from the network now are basically rolled back to the, the cognitive light cone of a single cell. They, they, as far as they're concerned, the rest of the body is just external environment. So this idea of, you know, where are my borders uh, well, it depends where, what, how, how am I connected to everybody else in, uh, informationally? Do we, do we share the same goals? Do we share the same memories? Do we have the same uh, compute power and so on? And if you don't, then, then, then you can have metastasis and transformation and all of these things. So that's, so this like, this like fluid, um, the size of the self, it changes during evolution and it changes during your lifetime, uh, both during embryonic development and then aging and, and, and potentially cancer. The multi-scale competency picture that you painted is a really important part of kind of everything here. And I think we'll get into this a little bit more when we come to specific details of your technological approach to mind everywhere. But one question I have about sort of how things happen at these multiple different levels is kind of an analog, I think, of the combination problem for panpsychism. And you do sort of talk about the ways in which your technological approach kind of implies something like a panpsychist view of consciousness. And here you're kind of looking at something analogous for cognitive function, where at the level of a cell, as you said, in a salamander, a cell doesn't know how long a salamander limb should be, but somehow collectively that knowledge seems to come about. And so I think we kind of had this analogous question here of, well, 
these smaller things, these individual cells, they only have goal directedness. They only have the ability to represent at their particular level. And so how does it emerge that a system that is composed of these things actually is able to represent these more complicated ideas? Yeah, well, uh, so 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 the the how does it emerge is actually that that's a that, that is a um, kind of what they call the easy problem in the sense. I mean, it's not easy at all, but 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 it's a straightforward scientific enterprise. In other words, we and, and Adam will talk more about this. Like we we are making models of how individual goal seeking units can be linked together into collectives, and in fact, uh, connectionist um, uh, thought in both both machine learning and neuroscience really gives lots of uh, good. Um, well, at least we think we're good. Maybe, maybe there's better better frameworks to come. But 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 they give good ways to think about how you build a collective from active units that knows things that the individuals don't know. I mean, there's plenty of this in neural networks and so on. So so there's plenty plenty of ways to like right? like that's a that's a standard research program. The thing the thing that I'll say about um, the panpsychism and so I don't want to get too much into consciousness per se because I haven't really said too much about that yet, uh, and so I'm still kind of working some stuff out for for that. But um, but but there's there's it, it's I, th- I think it's important to to keep in mind there's there's kind of two two types of panpsychism. There's the kind of standard older kind, which is we're going to take regular old physics, which per- works perfectly well, and then we're going to paint some some extra um, feelings onto the electrons, right? And and like and just say that the so so that one so nobody likes that kind. Well well some people do, but 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 most people are down on that, and they and they kind of really uh, re- reject that because they say, look, if your physics works perfectly well. Don't be painting all this other stuff onto it, and and in fact, but and then of course the problem is if you don't, you you have to do it at some point, or you end up in the eliminativist camp where it's just not there at all, and you know that that gets into other other problems. Uh, but there's a different way to think about it, which is the kind of, and other people have have thought about this too, but it's the kind of stuff, the kind of research program that uh, Carl Friston, Chris Fields, and some other people are doing, where instead of painting cognitive properties onto a perfectly good physics, what they're trying to do is to recast basic physics as, uh, as having uh, uh, elements of cognition from the bottom up. And again, this is, this is something that Adam will talk about. But, but this idea, you know, Carl calls it the, the, the physics of sentience and the sentience of physics. This idea that, that the kind of physics that we look at, you know, this, this like um, very dumb mechanical interactionism is really just a limiting case of a much more profound uh, active inference process that is really there at the beginning. So, so the the, re- the research program is to recast uh, physics as we know it as fundamentally a cognitive process, and that I think is a very healthy form of panpsychism because it will fundamentally a remove these these weird pseudo problems where you're like, well, we know we've got it at the end, we don't want it at the beginning. Where where is it going to show up? And then this is this is really unsolvable. Um, but it does provide this kind of like very um, assuming it can be you know done, and this is obviously uh, just just the beginning of that project. Uh, it provides a very pleasing scenario where. Things that you already know, like basic basic physics and so on, fall out as a uh, as a consequence of this much more much more fundamental way of thinking about things. I like that a lot. So that's 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 what I like. Before we get into regenerative medicine, I do want to discuss that in detail really soon. I want to touch on some of the ways that your thinking implies that we then think about AI, and I think we've kind of teased versions of this before and how intelligence can exist in different substrates, can exist in different spaces. One of those spaces might look something like language. I want to ask specifically, though, at this very high level, there is a lot of questioning around 
what is the appropriate object, the thing that we want to build when it comes to what it is to be an AI system? What is the appropriate target for cognitive science, for instance? And Stefan Harnad, for instance, thinks a lot about this idea of grounding and what he terms T3, a robotic version of the Turing test, where your goal is not just to convince somebody over like a text game or a conversation that you're a human, but to actually exhibit all of the robotic capacities that a human being like you or me has. And presumably he's thinking about sort of the standard 3D space when it comes to where that competency is exhibited. But his sort of idea of what really constitutes true intelligence and understanding really is tied together with that idea that I have this sensory motor grounding in the physical world. I can interact with things. I can learn how to do things with the right things. And I think that there is an element of goal-directedness, of teleology in that. But your thinking seems to imply that maybe there's a lot more that we have to start thinking about when it comes to the idea of developing what we could really call human-like intelligences, as well as sort of expanding the space of what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, I, so 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 I, I there's a couple of things that that I don't like in that in that whole framing, like right. So so one of them is that trying for a human brain. I, I mean, okay, you know, I mean, it's fine that somebody wants to do that, but 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 taking that particular goal as the uh, a kind of um, universal goal for artificial intelligence research strikes me as, as as just completely wrong. You know, humans are 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 one type of intelligence. Uh, intelligence has been around in, in, in biology and evolution long before neurons and brains came on the scene. And why, I mean, I, I, I sort of think about the wider universe. I kind of assume that, that there's all sorts of intelligence out there and thinking that for some reason, humans and the, and the few tricks that we know how to do in three-dimensional space is like the thing that you want to prove why that's the Turing test. I have no idea that that doesn't, that just doesn't seem, that seems so narrow to me. And, uh, I think, and and also, I, I when you know when when people say you know it's it's not general AI because it doesn't do these things that human has or it has different uh, different failure modes than humans have. I, I mean, that's fine. That's the whole point of of, of um, intelligence broadly conceived. Uh, and I think Turing would have been on on board with this. Uh, is is that uh, there are many different ways to solve problems. They are not all all the same. Um, I think that um, you know we should be thinking about. Uh, how do you convince uh, somebody that you've got the intelligence of a liver, right? That's not that's not done in three-dimensional space. That's done by cleverly navigating uh, a physiological space and transcriptional space. And uh, but, but I, I happen to think that we have we have so much more use for those kind of intelligences right now than things that we, we, we already have humans. Uh, you know, we, we have plenty of humans. What what we need is all kinds of other uh, other intelligences and other spaces that help us to really understand what what we mean by intelligence broadly that help us relate to other minds that are unconventional and that are not exactly like ours. Um, I just, uh, yeah, I just think that, uh, that, that, that test is, is incredibly narrow. And I don't think that AI should be a model of how the human brain works. Uh, we, we have neuroscience for this and it's, and it's fine. And when people say, well, that's not, that, that isn't at all how the brain does it. I mean, fine, fine. Uh, the, the brain, how the brain does it is not the only way that this is, that this is going to be done. So, uh, yeah, I, th I, th I think AI should be a lot more interesting than just trying to make models of the brain and specifically of, of the human brain. I think the picture you painted does look more interesting. And one of the things that we've kind of teased out a little bit that I want to dive into more is 
the implications and how some of the way that we think about intelligence here can manifest in regenerative medicine. So I'd love for maybe you two to introduce in a little bit more detail the work you've been doing recently together. I'll jump in on this. So one of the one of the key kind of insights that really captured my attention about Mike's work and the framework for it is this idea that there's intelligence at multiple scales. And that the types of spaces that that even cells, for example, are navigating is is meaningful, right? We have this story that because they're small, they're passive or they're they're uninteresting, right? That all of the behavior of cells could potentially be distilled down to say genes, but it can't. <laughs> it, it just can't. And we know that more and more from the experiments that have come out of Mike's group. You can take, for example, cells that have all sorts of genetic mutations that are typically associated with cancer. But if you send different signals into those cells, or if you put them in different kind of communication configurations, then they will not progress in the same way as normal cancer cells, even though they have the genes for it. You can give cells all sorts of drugs and you'll say, oh, if we give them this drug, then they're gonna respond in this way. But then they don't <laughs> because they start to learn, right? They start to become resistant or immune or whatever, right? We see this in antibiotic resistance and chemo resistance and all sorts of other drugs. So the idea that there's this sort of simplistic, passive input-output relationship between chemicals and behavior or between genes and behavior is just a framework that has been empirically disproven. That's not to say it's not true in individual cases or in instantaneous moments, right? Cells do have an instantaneous response to a gene or to a drug. But if you want to understand the dynamics over time, the progression of disease or the generation of limbs, you simply cannot distill that down to the activity of a few genes or a few proteins. You have to look at these interactive, dynamic, informational networks. So once you adopt that lens, I mean, look, it, it took me years to come around on this, because like almost everyone, I was turned on the reductionist view. But once you start to, to look at that, it opens up a world of possibilities. And I, I'm going to sort of parallel something that Mike said earlier about about you know, breaking things down into smaller pieces. I think the way that the kind of the world has been explained historically in the West has been a, a group of people who say it it's, can be broken down into the component parts. That's the sort of reductionist approach. And then it may be a more holistic approach, which is, well, it can't. <laughs> There's these other effects and you need to consider those other effects and it's not so simple. And like, obviously both are true in certain cases. What's been missing is the synthesis of those two to say, okay, if we can't break it down to genes and we can't break it down to proteins, we know that there's all these complex system level effects. Is there something that we can break it down to anyway? And the answer to that is yes, there is. You can break it down to flows of information. You can break it down to communication and decisions and goals. And that's not a woo concept. That's very quantifiable very computationally tractable, and it makes very specific predictions in, a, in many more spaces than the pure genetic or the pure protein or the pure signaling approach would, would get you. So this idea of using information as the common currency, bits, entropy, and so on, for understanding the behaviors of interacting systems, I mean, in some ways it's a throwback to the whole you know, start of the field of information theory. It's just that now, we know we've had enough decades of accumulated evidence to say that biological systems are information processing systems. 
And so that now we get to borrow those tools and apply them to this, to this area. So that's really the founding idea of Astonishing Labs and, and the reason that you know, I've been working with Mike and with Jess and with other folks on our team to, to bring these into, into you know, human patients is because now we know enough to make good predictions about how cells will learn. And we can, we, can, we can adjust those inputs so that the cells learn what we want so that they get on the path towards, for example, healthier uh, you know, bodies, regenerative outcomes, you know, uh, less aging, less cancer, sort of all of those things without having to edit the genes. And that's the exciting part. You can use these other informational properties as an alternative or even as a complement for genes instead of just relying on the physical and genetic reductionism. So the paper on future medicine that we were going to discuss a little bit, and I think to what you, Adam, said, there's a lot of really exciting implications there for things like regeneration. The idea that, say, a human being could actually regenerate a whole appendage or organ really does sound like something out of a superhero movie. I'm pretty sure that we see that in a lot of cases. And so really what you're kind of promising here and the approaches are how can we make that kind of thing into a reality? I know that there do exist examples out there, for example, with salamanders. I know that, Professor Levin, you've talked a lot about the rearranging of a frog's face as an example of sort of this this kind of homeostasis that things ring into. But I'd love to make this a little bit more concrete in terms of what are examples out there of how this type of thing can occur? Maybe, Adam, I don't know how much you can speak to some of the specific research you're doing and like results that you've had, for example. Yeah, let me just make a pr- preliminary statement around this, right? So all of this, like Mike was saying earlier, depends on the, the point of view that you take towards the question, right? It is preposterous that humans could fly until we had hot air balloons and airplanes, Right. And then the answer is, oh, actually, we can. If we have the right tools. Right. If you say it's it's preposterous that humans can can regenerate limbs. I mean, like, yeah, empirically, we haven't done it yet. Mostly. I mean, Michael probably have a few examples where little little infants can regenerate some stuff. But adult humans don't don't generally regenerate stuff. That's true. But if you ask the question, are humans capable of generating a liver? Are humans capable of generating a bladder? The answer is Obviously, yes, because we all did it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here, <laughs> right? And when you look at it that way, then the question becomes a little more interesting. It's, okay, if instead of trying to solve the regeneration problem, we're simply trying to understand the generation problem, which our bodies have already solved, well, then that offers a completely different lens on the question, which I happen to think is much more tractable and something that we're going to crack probably in the next decade or two. Yeah, this this is a really good point. So so oftentimes um, when uh, when I show the planaria, you know these flatworms, and you can chop them up into pieces, and each each piece gives rise to a perfect worm. People say that you know the audience is that that is amazing, wow. And I said, well, you you guys know that half of you in the audience can regenerate an entire human body from one cell. You can literally regenerate an entire human body from one cell because that is exactly what happens, and that's what that's what Adam's talking about, and so. Um, we know that cells have the ability to make this stuff. Some of them uh, tend not to, but some of them do. So, so deer, one of the examples I like, deer, every year when they, re- when they uh, shed their antlers, they'll regenerate bone, vasculature, innervation, uh, skin in exactly the right shape 
at, at a rate of a centimeter and a half of new bone per day. So uh, here, here's a large adult mammal that's able to regenerate some stuff. Human, human uh, adults regenerate liver and so on. So, so we know it's doable. We know, we know there are animals that do this. Uh, we know that we can do some of it. Uh, here, and, 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 and here's, I think, uh, the, the approach that, that, that we're going to take to this. For any kind of a system, uh, you have to decide what the right level, what, what the right set of tools is. And a lot of that depends on how much cognitive capacity that system has. So I have this, I have this thing uh, in the tame paper called the, the axis of persuadability. And you can just imagine you have sort of mechanical clocks on one end and then some homeostatic, uh, uh, you know, thermostats and things like that. And then some learning systems like animals and then reinforcement learning agents. And then, and then eventually some sort of high level metacognitive, you know, human like thing. So, so you, the, the, key, the key is that with all of these things, you have to figure out where your system lies on that spectrum to know what the right set of tools is. You don't want to spend your time trying to guilt the clock into doing something different. That isn't going to work. And, and, you know, but, but also you don't want to treat a, a, an advanced learning agent as if it were a mechanical kind of thing because, because you leave it all a lot on the table when you think that your only choice is to sort of uh, micromanage it like a, like a puppet, right? The, 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 the reason that humans were able to train dogs and horses for thousands of years without knowing any neuroscience at all is because these these systems offer this amazing interface right this this learning interface you don't have to know what's under the hood you can sort of use this interface so okay so you look at this uh, you look at the spectrum and you ask yourself well where are cell collectives on this on the spectrum and a lot of people uh, have, in fact, in uh, the kind of history of molecular medicine and, and developmental biology and so on, uh, the assumption has been that they're way on the left. They're these mechanical things and we need to rewire them and genomic editing and CRISPR. And, you know, we're going to micromanage all this stuff. We're going to 3D print organs and we're going to, uh, you know, that's that's the level of control. Uh and, and the thing is, that's an, what, what's, what's key is that that's an assumption. That isn't actually something you know for sure that that's your best level. That's just the level people are often the most comfortable at in this field, chemistry. They often say that it's because it's, you know, they want to reduce down to the lowest level. But if you say, ah, so you want, you want to work in quantum foam eventually? And they say, no, that's, that's, that's crazy. It's, you know, chemistry is the way to go. So, so right. So it's not, it's not really reduction. It's really that just like people have picked this, this level of chemistry as, as what they like. But, but that's an assumption. And so, and so the question is, where, where, where is it? And, and so, so we've been working on this idea that actually uh, cellular collectives are literally a kind of collective intelligence that solve problems in various spaces. One of the space you're working in is anatomical morphous space. It's the multi, the high dimensional space of all the different configurations that you might you might take. And and then the question the question then then it becomes a navigation problem. It becomes a, how does this swarm? And there are plenty of people who work on robot swarm navigation, right? And and you know and and um, uh, various uh, uh, types of uh, uh, vehicles, autonomous uh, swarms of autonomous vehicles, and so on. It's, it becomes a question of how does the collective navigate that space from where you are now, and that might be an embryonic state, it might be an injured state, whatever it is, to the position where you want to be, which is the correct target morphology for that animal. Or, or plant. And, and so the question is going to be, now you can reframe all of this and into uh, all of the tools of behavioral science. What are you measuring as that agent? What do you remember about your space? Uh, what are your prior expectations about that space? What are you willing to do? How much energy are you willing to spend to uh, go around obstacles where temporarily your distance from your goal actually gets worse, but then eventually it will get better? Like how much delayed gratification can you muster? Um, all of these things. And then some very specific things around active inference that, um, that Adam should talk about. Um, 
the, these become the targets of interventions. And the cool thing about that, if, if, uh, if, if that works, and we've, we've been for, for years showing various examples of it, it has a very particular kind of power, which is this. The standard paradigm has uh, genes are interacting with each other. They give rise to proteins. These things interact with each other according to local, fairly simple rules. And then through the process of emergence and complexity, outcomes whatever, a salamander, a human, whatever it's going to be, right? So that's a, that's a, that's a, fundamentally, that's a feed forward open loop process where you have uh, um, parallel uh, simple rules and then you get this complex result at the end. So, uh, and that's, and that's fine. And, and all of those things do exist, but if that's the only way to do this, then you've got a serious problem because uh, figuring out how to make changes at the system level, so large scale changes, in order to do that, you need to understand what are the ways in which you're going to change those rules. And that is a horrible inverse problem that is fundamentally not solvable. So just think about if you think about fractals, right, these beautiful kind of very complex things, and they're generated by a tiny little rule. So, you know, Z squared plus C is your formula. And somebody says, oh, amazing. I, I love those three giant curly cues. Give me one with, with four. And, and plus, I want this other thing over here. How, how do you change the formula, right? They're not invertible. You, you, that's, that's just not going to work. And so, uh, so, so, the, so that limits everything that we can do with CRISPR, with synthetic biology, with, with uh, protein engineering. Uh, that is the ceiling for all of those things. Instead, if what you actually have is a, uh, a homeostatic problem-solving system that is able to recognize distance from its various goals and do certain things to get back there, then, then the game is completely different because then what you can focus on is respecifying the goals manipulating the system's expectations, beliefs, and measurements about where it is, and eventually augmenting its capacity to do a better job at what it already does. So that, that is the kind of stuff we've been doing. Yeah, I did want to actually, it was kind of interesting that you called out protein engineering, Professor Levin. I did have sort of, I was curious to hear you talk a little bit more in detail about that, just because in AI right now, that's a very hot area, especially with AlphaFold and some other researchers I've spoken to recently are very excited that now we have these generative AI systems that can, given maybe a goal you want to achieve or something of that sort, we're kind of getting in the direction where then you can generate a 3D molecular structure that is able to achieve it. And as you said, there are maybe limitations there, but it does seem like there's, at the very least, I can kind of describe declaratively like a goal I'd like to achieve. And then I, at the end of the day, have a 3D structure that is able to achieve it. and so. There's something to the idea that there's problem solving going on there, but I think, as you said, there are limitations, and I'm curious just to hear you maybe riff a little bit more on, on how you think about that. So like, this is a place in which I think it's really easy to get caught up in kind of a black and white thinking. What, what Mike and I are saying is not that proteins don't matter. Proteins obviously matter. And there's an amazing amount of, of, of insight that we're already getting and we're going to continue to get about how to navigate the space of protein folding. However, there's this implicit assumption that underlies much of biology, much of you know, psychology, much of sociology, which is that if you just understand the proteins, then you've got it all figured out. And that's what we're saying is not warranted. So you can, you can build the world's best protein folding computer, and you can build the better version than that and the better version than that. And it will still not allow you to end the war in Ukraine. It will still not allow you to reverse cancer once it's begun. Because wars, cancer, all of these things are complex systems 
that are governed by the rules of the individual components and the interactions between the components. You need to understand the information flows, not just the building blocks, if you want to have a full account of the system. So, so I think this is the, 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 the way to kind of, it's not even threading the needle, it's like the, the honest take, right? The honest take here is AI is doing a great job at helping us do reductionist science better. And that science is going to pay significant dividends for human health, but it is not likely to cure cancer and it's not likely to reverse aging, or at least not to, to you know, do them as well as it could be done because cancer and aging are multifactorial, multi-scale information problems, not simply protein problems. This is a really good way of putting it. I'd love to maybe speak in detail about a specific example of how regenerative medicine could look. And one thing that came up in the future medicine paper is the example of a clinical application in liver disease. And I think the specific term was hepatostat. Could either of you maybe speak to that in, in a little bit of detail? Yeah, um, and I'm and I'm certainly not not an expert on that. So that's that's Eric Lagasse, uh, who was my uh, co-author on that um, on that paper. Um, that's his expertise. But ba- but but the bottom line is that they 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 have this notion of need of function, which is that uh, what what they've been what they've been able to do is to realize that the um, and 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 I think this goes back to to fairly old work that says that. Uh, if there, there are certain functions, let's say the functions that the liver does, that that if you have multiple pieces throughout the body, they will grow until their total effect uh, effectiveness, their their total physiological effectiveness reaches a particular point, and then they stop. So this idea that that um, there's there's homeostasis in some kind of um, physiological space where the system can tell how well things are going and keep improving or keep increasing or keep growing or whatever it needs to do until that need is met. And so, yeah, so, so Eric pioneered this, this, this amazing uh, thing where they implant uh, uh, pieces of uh, pieces of liver in uh, in uh, various other in, in lymph nodes in various other locations, and they show that it that it works, and they can they can rescue normal function and so on. So that's so that's really important, right? It's this it's this idea that the the materials you're working with, and 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 I call I call these things uh, living tissue. It's is an agential material. It has competencies. It has. Um, various things you can take advantage of, right? That you don't have to be there to micromanage every part of this. And that's, and that's really powerful. I think Adam said a very important thing, which is that, yeah, no, no, nobody's saying that, uh, that you don't need to understand your hardware or that, uh, the focus on the kind of lower levels of this hierarchy isn't important. It's absolutely important, but it, it's, it's the same reason we don't pick up a, a soldering iron nowadays when you want to go from Photoshop to PowerPoint on your, on your laptop. It's that, it's that, yeah, you can, you, you, you can work at the hardware level and, and many people do for specific things but 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 there's so much to be gained by understanding reprogrammability by understanding the kind of competencies of your hardware and no it's not like a modern like a typical von neumann architecture of course not but but that that aspect of reprogrammability and and of having a computational substrate instead of like passive materials is is going to be critical for biomedicine i think this is a really good set of of things to kind of begin coming to a close on and so i think that Over the course of this, we sort of introduced a lot of different ideas that I imagine listeners might not be as familiar with when it comes to imagining the intelligence that goes on at different scales in the body. And so perhaps just because I want to bring the discussion back to AI, this being an AI podcast, I think a a final kind of interesting question here might then be about, we've presented this pretty alternate view of 
what an intelligent system might look like, the spaces in which it might operate. And that necessarily expands our views about, well, I'm thinking about AI systems, about other sorts of systems. This changes what the idea of, of a machine is, for instance. In the Future Medicine paper, you actually talk about the idea of synthetic biologists viewing their medium as a machine, right? And sort of the idea that we can rationally understand these things, that they still do have intelligence and agency. I think a kind of final takeaway here would be for AI people right now, this is just a very interesting, weird time where I think that many people's intuitions are being messed with in a pretty different way when it comes to the language systems that we're looking at right now. And I think that from a perspective of what is it to be intelligent, what makes intelligence, how do we think about things like moral patiency when it comes to the systems we might be building? That throws a lot of these things into question. And so I think for somebody listening to this who's kind of thinking about their role in, in building AI systems and dealing with them, what would you say to them in terms of somebody thinking about, well, I don't know how to reconsider some of the moral quandaries or the sort of recognition that comes along with what it is that I'm doing. I think that a, a good place to start is to see what happens when you substitute the, world, the word computation for intelligence or computational for intelligent. Not because they're necessarily the same, but because once you start looking at the world and particularly biology as a bunch of agents doing a bunch of computations, then it sort of tones down the, the rhetoric a little bit, right? So as Mike said, there's good reason to, to say that a paramecium is doing computation. It obviously is. There's good reason to believe that every cell in our body is doing computation all the time. Nonetheless, we don't generally feel too bad about what happens when a few of our skin cells die and fall off. We don't lose sleep over that because they're relatively simple intelligences or relatively simple goal-seeking agents. As they become more compound, then our moral concern goes up. And as they become very compound and they become very intelligent, capable of performing all sorts of computations, then those are humans. <laughs> and then we start to become very concerned for their, their sort of fate. And I think that's all appropriate. If we're gonna be more concerned about certain things than others, surely we should be more concerned about the things that have a greater capacity to feel or a greater capacity to experience different states. I think that all lines up. Insofar as computers are intelligent, and you know that's not to say they are today, but if at any point in the future they are, if they're built of multiple building blocks, each of which has its own sort of basal intelligence, which you know, arguably we don't really do in AI today, but we could, and there's some experiments in that direction. But as we start to build these compound intelligences, it's right for us to ask, so how intelligent are they? What are their preferences? Are their preferences being fulfilled? And you know, what does that mean in terms of moral concern? But here's the, here's the catch, right? These aren't just evolving systems, we're building them. So we have the ability to engineer them in such a way that, for example, their goals are helpful to us as opposed to harmful to us. And so that they are satisfied when they do things that are helpful to us rather than harmful to us. So there isn't a conflict between what the AI wants and what we want because it's doing or it's even learning what we want. That's the analogy that I would draw to where we could go vis-a-vis -vis us and our own skin cells. The reason we don't worry about our skin cells is because unless they're cancerous, 
they're on our team. What's good for us is generally good for them and vice versa. The reason that we do worry about AI, a lot of us, including me, is because we haven't yet figured out how to have it behave in a symbiotic way with us so that what's good for us is also good for it. Instead, we find ourselves constantly dealing with the opposite, where the AIs are pursuing goals that are clearly either ignorant or in outright opposition to ours. That's why it's so important to understand these multi-level information flows. Because once we can understand the dynamics of symbiosis, then it'll be trivial to build AIs that are our friends. But until we understand the, the dynamics of symbiosis, we're almost surely doomed to building AIs that not only work against us, but might even suffer while they work against us, which is the worst of all worlds for everyone. I think this is a great message and note to end on. Adam, Professor Levin, thank you both so much for your time. And I really admire and appreciate the work that you both are doing together and individually. So thank you so much for speaking about this with me. Cool. Thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having us. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.